And so I want you to think back, uh, remembering what it was like to be a 10-year-old. Uh, so you're, you're 10 years old, it's early December, Christmas is right around the corner, and you're just enjoying all of the commercialized stuff that Christmas brings. Uh, even when you go to school, you walk the hallways, and they're just lined with tinsel and wreaths. You go into your classroom, and, you, and you, your teacher inevitably has one of those little blends of potpourri on her desk. So all day long, you're smelling just Christmas spices, cinnamon, and dried cranberries, and whatever those little twigs are that are always mixed into that blend. Um, when you go to the mall or to a store with your parents, they're playing Christmas songs, and they're all decked out with Christmas decor. You spend your afternoons out in the cold and the snow, and you come in from the freezing cold into this warm home, and you smell sugar cookies baking. And you grab a cookie and a glass of milk, and you go into your living room, you turn on the television. There's a different Christmas classic playing on every channel. And as a 10-year-old, you're just in your glory, loving it. It's so fun and exciting. But as a 10-year-old, as a Christmas season is in full swing, the biggest, most predominant thing on your mind is that magical moment when you would wake up on Christmas morning, run out, and underneath the tree, there's a gift for you to open. Now, I don't know about you, but as a 10-year-old, I had a hard time waiting for that moment. In fact, I was so consumed with thinking about what gift my parents were going to give me that I just couldn't wait until Christmas morning. So in early December, the hunt began. I would scour through our basement. I would go up into the attic, dig through, snoop through boxes. I would hunt through all the different nooks and crannies of our house, just hoping to find this gift that my parents would have gotten me. And I still remember the day when I snuck into my parents' bedroom. I slid open the closet door. I looked under this pile of my dad's shoes, and there it was, gorgeously wrapped. And I I took it out. I was so excited. My heart started beating faster. I was so excited. I took it out. I I held it in my hands and I shook it around gently, just listening to the noise of this treasure move around inside. And I, I held it up and I examined the size of it and the weight, trying to figure out what it could be, and I had no idea. So I I started taking the the little creases of the paper and trying to look in in between, see if I could read some writing on the box to get some idea of what this gift was. But I was stumped. and had no idea. And the anticipation of what this gift was that was underneath all of this paper and all of this ribbon was just too great. So I came up with this plan. I was going to unwrap the gift, look at the gift, and then rewrap it. And no one would be the wiser. So as gingerly as possible, I started loosening the tape and untying the ribbon. And just like that, my Christmas gift was open. And it was the most beautiful thing my eyes had ever seen. The original Nintendo, (laughs) complete with power pad. And I was so excited, and I looked forward to hours of playing with this thing. And that experience was indicative of the type of kid I was, how I was. I was so excited to receive this prize, this gift. I just couldn't wait until Christmas morning. And uh, every now and again, I'm like that a little bit as an adult as well. Uh, Oftentimes I'll be reading a a book or an article and I'm so eager for the gratification and knowing how it ends, I'll skip ahead and read the ending first. The uh, two times my wife has been pregnant, I just have not had the resolve to wait until the baby was born to know if it was a boy or girl. 
Mark and Annie, God bless you guys. I just could not do it. And I had to know as soon as the ultrasound would show. Um, Well, I'm not sure if you have that sort of difficult time waiting for the prize, waiting to see what the gift is. But regardless, I'm going to pull you into my world for a minute today. And right from the get-go this morning, we are going to peek at the gift. We're going to look at the prize, which means we're going to begin at the end. We've spent this summer working our way through the epistle of 1 Peter. And uh, Peter closes this letter, the end of the letter, where we're going to look today. We're going to begin with the end. Um, He closes this letter with this farewell to the suffering Christians of Asia Minor. And we read this wonderful farewell in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Turn there with me. 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 12. We're going to read, start at the end, and we will see if we find a gift. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So like any typical closing of a letter, uh, this farewell is pretty standard for its time. Uh, Peter says goodbye by saying, uh, mentioning, makes mention of this guy Silvanus, who he considers a faithful brother, this guy who may have even delivered the letter to the churches, or he may have even written down what Peter was, was uh, dictating. Uh, then Peter relays this message from the chosen believers in Babylon, which is likely a reference to Christians in Rome, and also from Mark. Peter then makes this final charge for them to greet each other with a kiss of love. And then he closes things out by wishing their peace. But embedded in this final farewell, we find a gift. We find a treasure that is worth peeking at a little bit early. In this farewell, Peter gives his whole purpose for writing this letter in the first place. And that purpose is to communicate God's true grace and to encourage God's people to stand firm in it. Isn't that something? He says, I've written briefly to you, declaring and exhorting. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And when he says this is the true grace of God, Peter's referring to the complete contents of the letter so far. All the instructions and the teachings. All the reminders and the truths. All the exhortations and the encouragements that he has just laid out for us in these five chapters are expressions of God's grace for Christians. In this closing farewell, Peter says, in all of what I've just written to you, God's true grace has been made clear. In it we see who Jesus is. He's the crucified and risen Savior. In it the Gospel is made clear. Chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might not die to sin but live to righteousness by His wounds you have been healed. In it, Peter reminds the Christians who they truly are, their new creations, born new, born again in Christ. In it, Peter tells us how we are to live out that identity as new uh, believers, as new creations in Christ in this world that rejects Jesus and therefore rejects us as followers. God's true grace is revealed in this letter. Through Peter, this man who understood his desperate need for the grace of God, and for a people who are desperately in need of the grace of God. 
That includes his original readers, these men and women living throughout Asia Minor, suffering under the, uh, the, the reign of this Roman Empire that was so eager to persecute them. And that includes you and I, men and women, who know how hard the Christian life can be, don't we? Men and women whose faith in Jesus Christ puts us at odds with our culture in a million different ways. So like Peter, let's start off today by opening up this gift and recognizing our great need for the grace that's being presented here in these five chapters. Now not only does he say this is the grace of the true grace of God, but then he encourages us to stand firm in it. So don't stray from this message of grace. Even when life is tough, be immovable in God's grace. So this letter is God's true grace for us and recognizing it as such and learning to stand firm in it is a gift worth opening early. So as we approach chapter 5 and we close out this summer-long series in 1 Peter, let me just encourage you to see the contents of this letter, including all of what we're about to talk through in chapter 5 as an expression of God's true grace for you. But let me also challenge you to stand firm and the truth that God is about to communicate. So now that we've skipped ahead a bit, we've looked at the gift, we've seen the prize, um, we've seen Peter's amazing purpose and his charge, let's look back at chapter 5, understanding that this is God's grace for us. And the first thing that we see is in verses 1-5, to Peter challenges us, the church, to stand firm in God's grace as we relate to each other. This is going to be a gracious word from God to us. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting back up at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now Peter frames this portion of his uh, letter with this as an exhortation to the elders. Um, so I exhort the elders among you. Now for the sake of clarity, elders is a word that's used synonymously throughout the Bible with other words like pastor, shepherd, overseer. And Peter has specific readers in mind when he issues this exhortation. In verses 1-4, to he's talking to spiritual leaders of local churches. These Christians that Peter's writing to originally were people who lived in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, as we read in chapter 1, verse 1. Those are all regions around Asia Minor. They're, they're gathering together in local churches throughout those regions, and all of those local churches are led by qualified elders. And that's actually how our church is structured as well. We're an elder-led church. Currently, Pastor Josh and I are the two staff pastors. And since we're a newer church and God has not yet raised up elders from among us, we have a whole group, a whole team of godly pastors and godly men who are working hard to hold Josh and I accountable and to help oversee this church until God does raise up elders from among us. And in these verses, Peter has a lot to say to elders about uh, how they are to serve, how they are to lead, and these words, let me tell you, are not to be taken lightly. So if you guys have had enough of Pastor Josh and I preaching to you, 
enjoy this. It's, it's, don't tune out. There's application here for you, but enjoy it because God has something to say to us. Also, some of you here may have aspirations to someday be, uh, serve as an elder in a church. And if that's you, just prayerfully consider what Peter has to say. Well, interestingly enough, before he uh, cuts, slices into the meat of this exhortation to elders, Peter gives us his credentials, really. Uh, he starts off describing himself as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He describes himself as a fellow elder. He's establishing solidarity with these elders that he's exhorting. In fact, Peter's not just an elder, he's an apostle. He's one of the twelve, so he understands the stresses, the pressures, the fears, the challenges, the failures that spiritual leaders come up against because he's one of them himself. He also describes himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And this is so important. Because understand, the man who the Holy Spirit is using to write this letter is someone who walked with Jesus personally. He saw individuals reject Jesus. He saw whole crowds turn on Jesus. He saw religious leaders reject Jesus. He saw Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He witnessed Judas selling Jesus out. He saw Jesus being arrested. And he knew well of Jesus' beatings and crucifixion. So when he says, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he means he personally witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Peter's witness is important because he saw Christ suffer, yes, but he saw him suffer in real humility, with grace, and complete submission to the Father's will. He saw it firsthand. He also describes himself as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And some people think that's a reference to him being there during the transfiguration. I believe he's anticipating encountering the glory that Christ will reveal in the second coming. But the point of verse 1 is this. Peter is carried along by the Holy Spirit, is credible. Guys, we can listen to him. We can hear what he has to say here and take it to heart because he's trustworthy and reliable. Now, I'm a, I'm a big sports fan, um, but I don't have cable TV. So the days of me watching games all the time are, are past. Those, they're in the past. But the way I, I keep up with what's going on in the world of sports is mainly through talk radio, sports talk, talk radio. And uh, one of the biggest, most popular sports talk radio shows in the U.S. is this show Mike and Mike in the Morning. And uh, the show has two hosts. They're both named Mike. A little confusing. Um, one is Mike Golick, who is this former NFL professional football player, played pro football for years. And the other is this guy, Mike Greenberg, who though he seems like a really smart guy, seems to know his stuff about sports, will openly admit that he's a terrible athlete and has never played anything personally at all. And this is my experience as a listener, but I noticed that when Mike and Mike are interviewing people, Mike Golick, the, the pro football player, his opinion just carries a little bit more weight. Now why is that? It's because he's been there. He's a former player. He knows the nuances of the game better because he's worked through them and played through them firsthand. Uh, he's lived the life of a pro athlete. He knows personally the challenges, the joys, the pitfalls, the celebrations. He's been on the field. He's been in the locker room. So when he's interviewing someone, he knows exactly what that person is going through. And that's Peter here. 
He's letting the spiritual leaders know that his opinion is not detached. He's not sitting up here on some holy hill preaching down at them, having no experience in this at all. In fact, he's better informed. He's more experienced. His word is credible and trustworthy. He's preaching to them. He's encouraging them as one of them. And this is what he has to say to these elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Elders are charged to shepherd the flock of God. And this image of shepherding is so rich with meaning. We just possibly could not delve into all the different implications of it here. We just cannot touch on it all. So in a general sense, we know a shepherd is one who cares for the sheep, right? That's the shepherd's overarching job. He's one who would faithfully lead these sheep to places of green grass and, and nutritious food and, and fresh water so that these sheep can feed and be strengthened and nourished and be healthy. Shepherd would also pro- provide constant con- uh, protection because these sheep are totally defenseless to, to stand up for themselves or to keep themselves safe from a threat of a wild animal or some other threat. So the shepherd works hard continually to protect them. Peter tells the elders that their work is spiritual shepherding, caring for, protecting the spiritual condition of those in their care. We also know that the flock is God's. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And that's important for you guys to hear. That's important for you to take to heart. Because do you understand that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are God's. Isn't that special? You belong to him. You are part of his flock. In verse 4, Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd. And the elders, are, we know, are appointed as under-shepherds to oversee God's flock underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. So in the biggest sense, you're not Pastor Josh's flock or my flock. You are God's flock, yet... As under-shepherds, God has appointed elders, spiritual leaders, to care for you. Peter tells us that the elders would go about this work of shepherding in specific ways and with a specific heart attitude. They are to exercise oversight, which means give attention to, oversee, take care of, care for, accept the responsibility for caring for these people. But they're not to exercise oversight under compulsion, not because anyone's made them. Not for shameful gain. They're not in it to make money shamefully. That's not their motive. Not domineering. They're not asserting some sort of dominance over you or trying to dominate you with some sort of selfish ambition or influence. Instead, they're to exercise uh, oversight willingly. Saying, yes, God, thank you for this. I will do this work for you. Praise you for letting me serve you like this. As God would have them eagerly and as examples to the flock. So while this exhortation is to elders, I hope you guys have been tuned in. Because these verses show us that God means business when it comes to how His people, how you are cared for. He wants you to be cared for well by those He has placed in your life as spiritual leaders. So if your elders, if your pastors are not exercising oversight over you, in a responsible, biblical way, the way Peter describes here, then we are in major breach of our calling. This is a charge for your pastors to be right with God, but also to do right by you. So guys, it's appropriate for you to expect this kind of servant leadership. 
Not to expect uh, doormats who will just bend to every whim. Not to allow for uh, uh, dictators who expect you to bend, bend and bow to every one of our whims, but servant leaders. It's what God has called us to. It's what God desires for you. So this office of elder carries with it this heavy weight of responsibility. Uh, Keep in mind the context. These Christians are all being persecuted and these elders are charged to shepherd these persecuted Christians as they themselves are also being persecuted and suffering. And the reality of the, the, the pastoral life is that it's not easy. It's easy to be discouraged, to fall away, to give up. Uh, The calling is challenging, yet serving God in this way is an amazing privilege that promises unspeakable reward. Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Praise God. So God's grace toward us today includes showing the church, showing us how elders are to relate to their people. Now aren't you glad that Josh, myself, our oversight board, any potential future elders that will, God will raise up from our church aren't going to be shepherding just blindly, trying to figure out how that's going to look, how to go about it, how, what our hearts should be like in that. Aren't you thankful that's not the case because Peter's made this role of shepherding crystal clear for God's people? Isn't that an act of grace on God's part to let us know this? I think so. Well, God's grace toward us continues as he shows us, gives, gives us this exhortation for how the congregants are to relate to their elders. And we see it in this exhortation to the younger in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So two questions pop up as we consider that verse. One is, who are the younger? What group of people is that referencing? And the second is, what does it mean to be subject to them? Uh, So who are the younger? Well, this identification younger, it's likely not referring to people who are young in age or maturity or experience. Instead, I believe the term is is identifying everyone in the church, church members who are not the elders. So it's directed to those of God's flock who are being shepherded by the local pastors and elders. He's talking about the congregants. And what does it mean for the younger to be subject to the elders? Well, this idea of being subject to anyone is certainly not popular or easy for any of us. And naturally, we just don't like being subject to the authority of someone else. And I know I don't. I'll admit that. I'll be the first one today to say, man, it stinks sometimes. I'm not into it. Um, I don't enjoy subjecting myself to someone else's authority. Um, I want to be my own authority. I want to let my own voice be the, the guiding one, accountable to no man. Uh, But that's not what God has for us. And despite those natural inclinations, when Peter calls for the younger to make themselves subject to the elders, he has this attitude of submissiveness in mind. Because though it's God's flock, he's appointed these people to care for you and oversee you and tend to your spiritual condition so it's appropriate for you to submit to their leadership. He's concerned with congregants respecting the authority God has given these elders as ones who are charge to care for you. And remember, this isn't at all Peter yelling at you saying, be more submissive. That's not what's happening here. This is gracious encouragement out of concern for you and for Christ's church. The health of his church. That if elders are submitting to Jesus Christ um, well, and if they're shepherding the people well, and if 
the people are submitting to Jesus Christ and submitting to the elders' leadership well, the church is healthy. So it's necessary, gracious counsel for God's people. Those of us who wrestle with living out our faith in this challenging world, this world that makes it hard for us to relate to each other like this. So the big picture of verses 1-5 to show us, congregants and pastors, how to relate to each other. And we'll suffer, we'll struggle, but we are Christ's church. The way we relate to one another matters. And Peter will tell us that the defining mark of this relationship within the church is going to be humility. Look at God's Word. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. Isn't that a beautiful Word picture, clothe yourselves. Wrap yourself up in. Be dressed in. Covered up by. Draped in what? Something far more precious than physical clothes. Humility toward one another. The relationship within the church between elders and congregants is a dynamic and complementary relationship. It's a complementary relationship that breaks down if one or both parties are not being humble with each other, submitting in humility to each other. How beautiful would it be if pastors would only shepherd in humility and if congregants would just submit in humility? And on the flip side, how dysfunctional would we look if elders would shepherd sinfully, selfishly, controllingly, pridefully while congregants acted divisively, refusing to submit to their leadership. Peter adds, he even goes so far as that emphasis as to how important humility is by echoing Proverbs 3.34 and James 4.6-10 in saying, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that a sobering thing to think about? God opposing the proud? Isn't it appropriate for us to have this healthy fear when we read a verse that says God, His opposition will be against you when there's pride in your heart? Isn't that a sobering thing? And it is also an amazing encouragement, reassurance to know that God extends grace to those of you who are willing to humble themselves. So even as we suffer, how do we relate to one another? How does this church operate? God's word of true grace tells us that we relate to each other in humility. It tells us to stand firm in humility. Well, Peter communicates God's gracious word to us and uh, exhorts us to relate to one another in humility, but he's not ready to sign off yet. He's still got more to say to the church. And in part, what he has to say is that um, in light of what I just said about the church relating to each other in humility, now relate to God in humility. Look at verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time He will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Now that we know we're to relate to each other in humility, he tells us we're to relate to God in humility. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves. That's an active posturing that you are taking up before God. So let us not approach Him in pride, as if we are worthy of Him, but with this deliberate awareness that we are only able to know Him because of His grace. So humility is completely the appropriate posture we take before this holy, great God. The figurative imagery of God's mighty hand is also so rich with meaning. It communicates God's power, His strength, His authority. It reminds us that God alone is mighty. No one else. He's got the mighty hand. I don't. You don't. His hand is the mighty hand. And doesn't knowing that the mighty hand belongs to God help you recognize your great need for Him? Doesn't it remind you that He has such great power over all things? And doesn't that help you come before Him and say, Yes, Lord, I will humble myself before You. Because You are You, the mighty God, and I am not You. And that's my role. The imagery reminds us that God is sovereign, that He is able, that He is in control. Isn't that sweet comfort for you as you suffer and struggle through life? And you struggle to actually trust Him with that, you know, when life actually rubs up against theology and you're not quite sure how trusting God actually looks and it's, it's hard. Isn't that sweet comfort for you? Keep in mind this mighty hand of God that warrants and deserves our humility is the same mighty hand that allows His people to suffer on earth. That's what Peter's been saying all along, isn't it? He's made it very clear God allows His people to suffer for the sake of testing them, for the sake of refining their faith, which He says is more precious than gold, and for the sake of God's own glory. Now, does knowing that this God who has this mighty hand allows you to suffer to those ends, are you willing to humble yourself under Him? Peter's charge to us throughout the letter is that we would respond with a resounding yes. To say, I accept the difficult times that you allow, God. Because you are a God of infinite power and authority and sovereignty and you love me with this unwavering love so I can trust you and I will humble myself under your mighty hand. And I do so knowing that at the proper time, he will exalt me. At the proper time, it says, right? The proper time in God's sovereign will may not be your time, (laughs) It may not be a time that you think it should be or expect or think you deserve. It may not even be in this life. The exalting may not come in this life, but the promise of God's unshakable Word says that you can humble yourself before Him knowing that the mighty hand of God resides over you and that He will exalt you in this life or in the next. Our humility under God's mighty hand also includes casting our anxieties upon Him. Look at verse 7. Casting all, all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now that participle, casting, is dependent. And it's actually modifying the verb to humble up in verse 6. So it's not providing some new command. Peter's not shifting directions and saying, humble yourself, and now giving a totally disconnected directive. That's not what's going on. He's clarifying how we are to humble ourselves. It's not just saying, humble yourselves. He's showing us how it's done. We learn that humbling ourselves is not a passive activity. It's uh, an active reliance upon God. 
And we know that being a Christian does not make us exempt from feeling anxiety. Isn't that true? Amen? Anybody feeling anxious this morning? We're not exempt from that. But it informs what we do with it. How we deal with it. The prideful response to anxiety is to say, you know what? I'm going to carry this on my own. I got this. This is hard. I'm, I'm, I'm racked with worry. But I, I'm going to just take care of this on my own. It's not too much for me. The humble response is to say, Lord, my heart and my mind are racked with worry. Please come and help me, God. I can't bear this in my own strength. Give me peace and I will leave the burden of my anxiety on your shoulders, which are so able to carry it for me. And to be honest, it's not, probably not going to be a one-time thing. Um, this week, I um, just had just one of those weird scheduling weeks where there wasn't a lot of downtime. And I knew I was preaching and I wanted to be prepared. My greatest nightmare is coming up here and having nothing to say. And I didn't want this to be the week it was going to happen. So I, I, was, I was concerned about having enough prep time and squeezing and everything else. And I was mapping out what was gonna, how things were going to go this week, and I just started to get anxious. And as I studied this passage, let me tell you, God just broke me of that. And for me, it looked like this. Lord, I'm, I'm worried. I'm getting anxious. I'm feeling worried about this. Uh, but forgive me and take it from me and help me just to trust you with it, knowing I can't get there on my own. And then five minutes later, I start feeling anxious again. So I stop. Lord, take it. Take it, Lord, please. Ten minutes later, I start feeling... And honestly, it it was like that. Just a battle with anxiety all week and I just kept giving it to the Lord. Cast your anxieties upon Him. I had to learn this week to be humble before Him by allowing Him to take that stuff rather than trying to deal with it on my own. So are you feeling any sort of anxiety because being a Christian in this world is hard or just because life is hard or whatever? If so, humble yourself under God's mighty hand and do so by casting your anxieties upon Him. And you can cast your anxieties upon God knowing that He cares for you. Guys, He cares for you. Do you believe that in your soul? That this great God we sing to and talk about is for you and not against you, that he cares for you. That when you give him your cares and stresses, he cares for you. Don't neglect to to know that. So that's how we're encouraged to relate to each other and to God, even as we suffer, especially as we suffer, with great humility. So stand firm in humility. And while God's gracious word to us includes those things, Peter explains that our humility before God informs our approach to dealing with Satan. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The message here is straightforward and simple. The devil, who Scripture tells us is a real created being, a fallen angel, an enemy of God, yet infinitely lesser than God. And that's important because oftentimes we think there's like God up here, number 1A, 
And then there's Satan under here, maybe like 1B, and it's a close contest. It's bad theology. There's God, the infinite, all-powerful, amazing king of the universe. And then infinitely below him is all of creation, including this being Satan. Jesus Christ has already defeated him once and for all. But here he's depicted as a lion, a prowling, roaring lion seeking to devour people. And it's an interesting illustration because Satan's depicted as this raging lion, but God's people were just depicted as these helpless, defenseless sheep, a flock, helpless animals, totally dependent upon their shepherd for safety. Now the thundering roar of a lion would scatter a flock in a second. A lion who is prowling, seeking to devour sheep who are unprotected by a shepherd would slaughter as many as it wanted as easily as could be. Yet when the sheep are alert, when they're awake, when they're watchful, when they're in tune with their shepherd, when their shepherd leads them over to this pasture because it's a little more safe, safe and, and, and they're in tune with where he's leading, they're watchful and they go with him. When they're standing behind the shepherd and trusting him to fend off and fight off these, these threats and these enemies, they are safe in his care. The point is this. The devil's goal is to devour you. To destroy you in Christ's church. To draw you onto the easy and sinful road of the world and off of the hard and relentless road of the Christian. Yet when we humble ourselves before our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, casting our anxieties upon God, trusting Him to care for us rather than trying to work our way through the Christian life in our own strength, And when by His grace we're clear-minded, sober-minded, watchful, relying on Him to help us stand firm in our faith, the lion can pace, the lion can roar, and may even cause the sheep to suffer for a short time as we see in verse 9, which is actually referencing our experience on this earth. It's just a short time. may allow us to suffer for this short time, but when things all shake out in the end, our great shepherd Jesus Christ will lead us to a safe place for all of eternity. Look at verse 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Will Himself. God will do it. He's not outsourcing that to some other party. This is God's work for us. God's described as this God of all grace. It's the perfect description of this one who is the sole source of mercy and goodness in all of the universe. A remarkable evidence of His grace we see in the latter half of verse 10. It says, Who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. So please don't pass over that this morning. His people, whom He calls to Himself, He's granted them eternal glory in Christ. Sinners, unworthy, despicable sinners granted eternal glory. Those who repent and confess Jesus as Lord and are justified through Jesus Christ are promised eternal glory. He must be the God of all grace because no one deserves that. Yet that is what He gives His children. And by God's grace, let's just take on that eternal perspective that our time of suffering in this world is so short 
in the scope of eternity, this eternity which will bring about us experiencing glory in Christ for ages upon ages upon ages, forever and ever and ever. And this God of grace who gave us grace through the death and resurrection of His Son is the same God of grace who gave us this word, this call toward humility to help us in this life. He's the same God of grace who grants us eternal glory in Christ. And He's the same God of grace who promises to Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Those four words work together just to give us this full picture of God's completed work in the lives of His people, which will be fully realized when Christ returns. He is the one who restores the broken believer. He is the one who confirms the faith of the suffering Christian. He is the one who strengthens the weary saints and establishes their weakness in this rock-solid and immovable foundation of Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, I'm feeling broken, feeling weary, tired and weak, understand that if you have real, true, authentic faith in Jesus Christ, a day will come when your chief shepherd and king will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you once and for all. If you've placed faith in Jesus, that's your hope. That's your expectation. And if you sit here never having trusted in Jesus as your Lord, now's the time. Confess Him as Lord. Repent of your sin. Receive the forgiveness only He can provide. Take on these promises of Jesus Christ and join the chorus of God's people who sing, as we read in verse 11, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion is and will be God's forever. The word dominion, it means exercising, ruling ability, power, might, sovereignty. It's God's forever. Knowing that dominion is God's forever, for all of eternity, let us humble ourselves before Him. So as people who struggle in this life, God's gracious word of truth tells us to relate to each other and to relate to Him in humility. God's word of grace tells us to relate to him in, in humility, to stand firm in humility. So there I was as a 10-year-old little Ryan, butt cut, terrible haircut. Um, it's Christmas morning. I've already peeked at the, the gift. There's no surprise whatsoever. I already saw the Nintendo. And uh, I'm out there. I, I, I run out to the tree, and um, I've looked at this gift. I've admired it. I've spent hours thinking about how great it's going to be to play with this thing. And I'm there with my family, and they're all huddled around. We're taking turns opening gifts. My dad's got the video camera. And my turn comes to open this particular gift, and everyone's looking at me. So I just tear into this paper. And uh, you know what? It was just as thrilling the second time. (laughs) Um, And I say that because, guys, this gift of God's true grace to us which we see in this letter to 1 Peter, which in part is this exhortation to relate to each other and to God in humility. Please know it is so special and thrilling and relevant and powerful for your life. So as we close out this series in 1 Peter, and you continue to live out your faith and struggle and suffer in this world, keep opening this present over and over and over again. It's worth it. It will help you. 
It's God's grace for you, his true grace, and stand firm in it. Stand firm in humility, guys. Stand firm in humility. Let me pray for us. God of heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for telling us things we need to know. We thank you for understanding our struggle and our hardship and our weakness. And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you did more than just understand. You made the ultimate sacrifice to enable us to know the mighty God, to live in relationship with you, to be forgiven and washed clean, to stand before you righteous because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word of true grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just sit in your grace, that we might be more faithful to you and bring you glory. We love you, God. We thank you in Christ's name.